Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 46, recorded on May 26th, 2011. And uh, we're going to do some really cool, at least I like them, uh, maybe you don't as much, uh, Gary 7 IDW stories. Yeah, so Gary 7 was pretty popular original series episode, Assignment Earth, uh, but he hasn't had a lot of appearances in comic books, so we've pretty much read everything so far up to date that he's ever had, and then now we're finishing up with the Assignment Earth miniseries that was done by John Byrne in 2008. So I've seen on the schedule there's supposedly an Assignment Earth 2 miniseries, but I already know that John Byrne's already working on like two miniseries before that one's scheduled to be released, so who knows if it'll ever, ever actually get released. Well, so, okay, so he hasn't started working, I mean, it isn't like it's done and just on the shelf. Right. Uh, it's still got a lot of work to it. I'm assuming it still has a lot of work. Uh, like, uh, it's been over a year, maybe even two years, that I saw that it was in the works, so right. that's why I kind of was going to hold off on doing these this miniseries until I knew for sure when that other miniseries was going to come out. But uh, before we started this, I saw that, you know, it was on the schedule of the John Byrne uh, Star Trek stuff. And, and that one was like third on the list. Uh, and he has other miniseries and, and ongoing series that he's doing. So kind of makes me feel like Assignment Earth 2 is just never going to come out. Mm. No, let's hope not. Yeah. You hope it's not going to be canceled. Exactly. Speaking of something that's been delayed, or they're talking about it being delayed, Star Trek Twelve. Oh no! Yeah, supposedly uh, they were talking about it being released in uh, summer of 2012, and right. now I'm reading that um, they really don't even have a script yet. And based on Chris Pine, Chris Pine's uh, theoretical schedule for doing the next uh, round of Jack Ryan movies, um, there people are conjecturing. Uh, it won't be till winter of 2012. Oh man, that's crazy. That is crazy, but that's not official. But but well, if they but if they really don't have a script, I mean, it's like oh, ah, <laughs> kind of need well, that. That's not as bad as you know Star Trek 11 was supposed to come out in the summer, right? And then it got delayed for marketing whatever reasons. reason. They wanted to. The, the article I read was talking about that too. It was they wanted to market it better, supposedly. Well, another thing, uh, this coming summer is going to be the Avengers movie. And I forgot the other one they had mentioned. But there's going to be some pretty major blockbusters that are already filming. Yeah, so, the, the summer of 2012. Right, exactly. So it seems kind of... Now, I think it's unlikely we'll be seeing it next summer. Damn it! So that means that... Because uh, the winter of 2012 is when the new Superman movie is supposed to come out. So that means... They might be going head to head. Yeah, eh. Star Trek, Star Trek will cream it. Don't say that. I kid. mean, how many times have we seen Superman? Come on. 
And how many times have we seen Star Trek? Not enough. Not nearly well, enough. Anyway. Not nearly enough on both cases. <laughs> yeah, so so Superman is, just to let everybody know, Superman is pretty much your favorite comic book character. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. There you go. No question. So. No question. So not enough. Okay, anyway. Shall All we right. uh, get back to Star Trek land? Yeah, so uh, as I was saying earlier... Uh, this week and next week, we're going to be reviewing Assignment Earth miniseries. It was a five-parter. Uh, we're going to do the first three issues today and the last two issues next week along with a, uh, a random issue from the Dr. McCoy miniseries uh, that John Byrne also did that kind of ties into uh, these five. Right. Specifically, the third one we'll uh, do today. Yep. So you want to get us started, kid? I will do that. The first issue uh, within the Assignment Earth uh, miniseries, uh, of which, uh, just to, this isn't a big deal, but I'm reading it from not the original comics, but actually from a graphic novel, which is uh, a compendium that pulled together all five comics, and they are basically different chapters within the single book. Just a little. So that is out there and available for those of you that are interested. Uh, it is a, a quite quite nice, high quality uh, graphic novel. I likes it. Okay, uh, the first issue is "Brighter Than a Thousand Suns." That's the title. Uh, originally, as a comic, it was published May two thousand eight. Creative team is, of course, John Byrne, uh, the scripter and the artist. Colors are by Tom Smith. Letters, Robbie Robbins and Chris Mowry. The original... Okay, so again, this is where it gets a little weird with the graphic novel. The original edits were done by Chris Ryle. Uh, Collection, graphic novel edits, done by Justin Isinger. And the collection design is done by uh, Neil Uataki. Boy, I wonder if I got that right. Okay, synopsis. Our story opens three months ago. In the closing scenes of the original Star Trek episode, Assignment Earth, Kirk and Spock are standing in a room with a seated Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln and Isis, the black cat. They are discussing how the Enterprise's unexpected involvement in a pivotal nuclear missile launch in 1968 all turned out for the best and as history records it. As the men are focused on their conversation. Roberta notices that Isis has shape-shifted into a lovely brunette woman on the office couch. She calls Seven on it, who says Isis is simply my cat, who surely, who sure enough has slipped back into her cat form. Spock makes the observation that Mr. Seven and Roberta Lincoln are likely to have highly interesting future adventures. With that, the two Starfleet officers bid a fond farewell and beam back to the Enterprise that will return to their own time. With that reminder of the debut of Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln, the new IDW limited-run comic series, Assignment Earth, begins. Three months later. On the outside ledge of an Albuquerque, New Mexico skyscraper, Gary Seven, with a devilish smile on his face, is leading a very nervous Roberta Lincoln to just the right window that will grant them entry to a very unusual office. 
the Beta 5 computer was unable to teleport them to this uh, office that has unusually coded communications coming in and out of it. By letting ISIS into a small upper window, too small for a human, they are able to gain entry via a larger window ISIS opens from the inside. They search the office and find a locked desk drawer that contains Russian radio hardware. A disappointment for Seven, who was expecting to find more advanced equipment. Suddenly, a large, darkly dressed man enters the room, but is zapped with Seven's wonder pen into a happy, sleepy, cooperative state. Seven asks him where the equipment is that is blocking the teleporter signals. He directs their attention to a recessed compartment behind a wall painting. Behind it is a complicated-looking device. Seven removes the glowing green cube that is the Beta 5's remote device. It scans the Russian's wall equipment and determines it's made from conventional 20th century parts, but is operating at Mark IV energy levels. A very advanced device indeed. Isis lets out a warning as the door knob turns. A woman dressed in black with short brown hair enters the nearly empty room asking Ivan what is the delay. Seven and his companions exit a shimmering blue room with an imposing bank safe door into a nice looking office. Gary Seven's Manhattan office. Seven tells Beta 5 the blocking equipment is disabled. Go to visual. Via a round viewing screen, we see the black-clad pair back in the original office with the man rubbing his head and the woman angrily accusing him of drinking. He does not remember what happened. She gets him moving out the doors, stating the last component will be delivered in 48 hours and we need to be out of this country before Hercules is fired. Seven explains that Hercules is a top-secret nuclear test located in New Mexico that Beta 5 has been monitoring for months. They get kitted up in matching scientific person threads and teleport to the San Lobos Atomic Research Facility. Almost immediately on their arrival, they are accosted by an Army MP. Seven produces excellent fake credentials and says they are new scientists to the program. The MP directs them to the main lab where they meet the full scientific staff made up of nine distinguished scientists. Dr. Diana Winter is the team leader and a very cute brunette who Seven takes an immediate liking to. Despite questions from the suspicious Dr. Truman, who says he's never heard of Seven, they are accepted into the group with handshakes all around. They move into Dr. Winter's office where she planned to call security and verify their assignment. Seven uses his handy-dandy pen to secure Diana's cooperation in, in explaining that Hercules is an enhanced fusion bomb that is ready for testing in less than 24 hours. Seven is very concerned and says the enhanced fusion weapons destroyed the entire civilization on Delphi Centaurus. If anything goes wrong with a test, a radioactive cloud could cover half of the U.S. They persuade Dr. Winters to drive them to Hercules itself. They pass a guard and take the tour in anti-radiation hazmat suits. They meet Dr. Wang, an unhappy defector from China that states his displeasure with American waste. ISIS is assigned to follow Dr. Wang 
and look for any suspicious behavior. Mr. Seven takes Dr. Winters to dinner. Purely professional, of course. They end up at Diana's apartment, drinking wine. At 5 a.m. the next morning, Gary arrives at his Manhattan office to find Roberta and Isis are there waiting for him. They go over the dossiers of nine scientists looking for the likely traitor that is working for the Russians. Seven of the scientists look more suspicious, or several of the scientists look more suspicious than the others, but none are conclusively identified as the spy. They continue to watch and ask questions. As the seven team's conversation concludes, elsewhere in the dark New Mexican desert, a tall Marlboro man-looking dude meets one of our scientists, Dr. Arthur Truman. Indeed, it looks like his Hitler mustache was the giveaway. Tex <clears throat> hands the good doctor a small box and tells him to slip it into the usual hiding place where number one will pick it up from Truman. Truman asks who number one is, but when Tex declines his request, Truman just says that that it doesn't matter since everyone in a thousand mile radius will be dead or dying past 6 p.m. tonight. So, Dr. Truman is just a delivery boy, not the, re- not the real threat, who is this number one person. Who is number one? No, it's not Riker. Later that day, as final preparations are being made for the test, most of the scientists are together in an impressive-looking control room. They comment on how no one has seen Dr. Truman since this morning. Dr. Winter is driving to Hercules. She enters and passes the friendly security guard who is packing up his things to leave. As Dr. Winters goes to manipulate controls in an electrical box, Dr. Truman steps forward with a pistol in hand, telling her not to move. He tells her this has all gone too far and it has to end now. Before he can carry out his threats, he goes all slack and drops the gun. Gary Seven is behind him, putting his pen back into his pocket. Seven goes to grab Truman off the ground, telling Diana to get ready to get back to the control center and shut down the test. When Diana hits him across the back of the head with the butt of the gun he just handed to her. Diana gets a radiation suit on and places the Marlboro man's small tan box into the electrical box Truman attempted to get her away from. Later Seven comes to realize Diana is the Soviet agent. He shakes it off and goes to find her and stop her. When Gary finds her, he discovers she has Truman's pistol. She admits to being a spy and is looking forward to going home to Mother Russia. Just as she is getting ready to remove Gary from the picture, a bullet unexpectedly penetrates Diana's forehead. The guard Smith found Truman and knew Dr. Winters had to be stopped. He did so with extreme prejudice. Seven assures him it was the right thing to do, the only thing to do. Later in Seven's office, Gary's voice recognition IBM Selectric typewriter takes down his after-action report. Diana Winter was the name of a three-year-old girl who died in 1933 and was the basis of the Soviet agent's false identity. 
Project Hercules was shut down pending further investigation. Hopefully it will become a permanent shutdown. Roberta shows concern for Gary, considering she thinks he really liked Dr. Winter. Turns out that Gary did indeed like her. He assures Roberta he will be okay, just not anytime soon. End of story. Yeah, a, I, th- I thought it was a fairly sophisticated story for a comic book. I thought it it, it, it had a little mystery, a little Cold War spy story, uh, with, of course, a sci-fi angle, uh, and that it had that uh, little romance and even heartbreak at the end uh, injected into it. Uh, you know, gives a little bit of a little emotional roller coaster uh, action going on there. I thought it was a pretty sophisticated story. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you were not as impressed. <laughs> it was just your classic mystery, and uh, I mean, it was a who done it, who, who's the spy yep. kind of right. thing, and I don't know. I just kept thinking that it was your typical, you know, murder she wrote type story. Oh, you didn't like murder she wrote? I loved. I, I she loved wrote. it. <laughs> well, I liked it. I think I've only had I've seen like maybe five episodes, but I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Yeah, so there's nothing wrong with the classic murder mystery type story. I'm, I don't mean to sound like who done it. I'm bad mouthing it, but it's just I don't know. I, I maybe I'm a little jaded in that I was wanting more of a sci-fi angle, uh, which this definitely was not. Right. Well, as I think you mentioned last week. Uh, apparently, when they came up with the whole idea of Assignment Earth, it was a Star Trek spinoff that would be more based on Earth. Lower budget and, uh, you know, not as much in the special effects area. Right. Right. And, and again, it wasn't a bad story. It was just, you know, you're you're introduced to all the characters. You know one of them's going to be the bad guy. And, you know, they lead you, they give you a red herring. You go one way and then... Exactly. And oh no, it's the love interest. Exactly. The last person you expect. Which is always the first person you suspect. I've seen enough Murder, She Wrote <laughs> and Agatha Christie type stories that right. I know that it's the person that you least suspect. Or you're supposed to least suspect. Exactly. Except when they know you've seen a lot of mysteries. <laughs> and so the person you least expect ends up being the person that didn't do it. And it Anyway, you get the idea. I get the idea. So, anyways, I liked it. Uh, I, out of out of the assignment Earths, it, it's probably my least favorite, but uh, it, it was good. Cool. Well, um, I thought the art was good, like a lot of the uh, burn stuff. Um, not the best I've seen, but but good. Um, I was kind of interesting. It was kind of violent, though. I mean, when she got when Doctor Winter got hit hit through the head. That was like, uh, it's like, well, you didn't have to do that. But it sure was, uh, it had some shock value there. Well, it was just, the only, yeah, the shock value. But it was just a trickle of blood down her forehead. It's not like oh, yeah. it showed. Well, it didn't show the, 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 the forehead uh, portions of the skull coming away, no. Right. Yeah. Which is normally not what you see in uh, in TV shows or movies when they, they show somebody shot in the head. Yeah, they do a pretty good job when she gets shot in the head. They have just a close-up of her eyes for three panels, and the trickle of blood is going further and further down her face. It's pretty pretty powerful, I guess. Yeah, it's cool. Yep. 
Uh, I like seeing uh, Kirk and Spock there at the beginning to kind of kick things off and uh, remind you of the kind of how we were introduced to the characters. Right, or how we left them 30-something years ago. Well, yeah, but it's it's serving the function of introducing the characters to us. If you were, happen to be somebody that had not uh, seen that original episode, which, <laughs> how could that happen? Right. And what I really liked in this story, which I'll complain about in other issues, yeah. is the way they depict Isis. You know, they show the only scene from the original episode which shows her in her human human form. Right. Which I liked. And then they kinda toy with it a little bit later, like when he puts her into the into the room and somehow a human hand comes and opens the door for, or the right. window from the inside. <laughs> right. But it's all like you don't actually see anything, which I really liked. Kind of kept the mystery about what what is Isis and what is her relationship with Gary Seven. Right. I liked I liked it in this one. Uh, we'll talk about it here in a little bit. That they kind of move away from that, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Yeah, they show her a lot more in the uh, second and third stories. So, cool. um, I also like the fact that. Um, and they've done this a couple times in a couple of the comic book stories, uh, which they didn't do at all in the original TV series, or TV episode. Um, but getting, I don't know, maybe to some degree it's overly done it. I don't know. I, I'm not sick of it yet, but we'll see if they keep on doing it. Uh, but the point that, um, that, Steve, that Seven is still human and susceptible to things like heartbreak um, is kind of interesting, despite the fact that obviously he is no normal man. Um, if he's got a lifespan supposedly of a thousand years, obviously he's been altered in some ways. But luckily, I mean, I kind of like the fact that he's not been altered enough that he can't still be subject to um, human um, human frailties. That's right. the word, frailty. Oh, I love that word, frailty. And I'm pretty sure that the... Gary Seven can live to be a thousand years old was made up just for the that DC Comics. I'm pretty sure that was not part of the original intention. Uh, mm. uh, so I, I'm kind of feeling like this Gary Seven in this miniseries is not the same, you know, within the same continuity-wise, the Gary Seven right. that we saw in those four DC comic issues. I mean, I might be wrong. But oh, I mean, okay. Do you did you ever read anything? Uh, about the original assignment Earth that said he was going to live a thousand years. I do not remember them ever mentioning that. Because what I remember is that he keeps stressing that he is human, he's just been raised and trained on this other planet, and right. that he's not a time traveler. I mean, those are like the, the three things they really drive in, in your head in that episode. In the original TV episode, right? Right. So I'm assuming that this issue is just going with that, and that he's just a normal man who's going to only live, you know, till he's 80, 90 years old, and then right. he'll be replaced with, you know, Supervisor 195 or whatever the next guy is. Right. And that does kind of support things, as we'll see in a future issue, um, the third issue, where uh, we see Roberta much later in her life. And uh, Don't give Gary, away any spoilers now. Well, Gary's not there. Or at least he's not in the scene anyway, which is a short, it's, it's a short little vignette. Right. But that might be because he's passed on. You don't know. Right. Now, 
I'm having a hard time remembering because it's been several years since I read this book. But in the Greg Cox uh, Eugenic War book one, I'm okay. Gary Seven plays a pretty big part, and Roberta. Um, and I'm thinking in that one they mention that Gary Seven and Roberta are both getting older, and that they're looking for replacements. Now I might I oh. know for sure they were looking for a replacement for Roberta. But I, I'm trying to think that – I think they imply that Gary Seven is getting up there as well. Yeah. Uh, which would make sense if he's still human. But Yeah, so how much further in the future was that? Because that's the time of Khan. It was, it was the 90s, the 80s and 90s. Okay. So that's another 30 years. After uh, these 20, stories. 30 years after these stories. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so I only have so much free time. I was going to go back and, and look through those, but uh, I'm trying to get through. Uh, there's a novel that an, another novel written by uh, Greg Cox called Assignment Eternity, and in that Gary Seven goes to the future, uh, and it takes place like about a year after the Assignment Earth episode, and he ends up going to the future uh, <laughs> to stop. Basically, he's he's going to the future because he has to stop. A Romulan assassination on Spock <laughs> during the events of Star Trek VI. So we've already seen this alternate future where, in, at the end of Star Trek VI, you know they they stop that assassin from killing the president, and then right. this Romulan just walks up and shoots Spock point blank, disintegrates him, <laughs> uh, and then that's that's the event he's trying to stop. But he goes to the original series timeline to stop the chain of events that's going to lead to that. So I haven't finished it yet, but it's it's actually pretty good. It's not, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it's 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 a good one. Uh I read another Gary Seven one which I'll talk about here in a little bit. Um another e e book that uh you can get off of Amazon. But uh it kind of ties in with issue number 2, so we'll talk about that one later. Okay, sounds good. That's all I've got to say about the first issue. Uh me as well. I I do kind of like how they're they're dangling the uh, this story thread where there there is some futuristic technology that the Soviets are using. Right. Uh, in this issue, they don't go into it at all. He just says this is several hundred years um, more advanced than anything that should be here now, and then exactly. they never talk about it again. And I was worried that it was just going to be a a throwaway line, and then they, they're bringing it back in the later issues, so uh, obviously it was intentional. Indeed. Somebody is giving the Soviets technology. Mm. That's a threat. That's a threat, my friend. You know who I think it is? Who? It's the same group of people that was giving the Sulaban the futuristic technology during the Star Trek Enterprise series. Do you think? During the Temporal Cold War? Yeah, the Temporal Cold War. Which, I like that storyline, because uh, it was kind of like, um, it was kind of like um, the X-Files, where they always had that, that alien storyline that kept on going, and then you had your little adventures, and alien storyline, and then little adventure, and then, you know, you always look forward to the alien storyline episodes, because that was the big thing. I always looked forward in the first uh, Star Trek episodes when the Cold, temporal Cold War came up to the temporal Cold War ones because that's what I you know come on let's get on with that and then they dropped the whole thing well 
They didn't drop it. It lasted two years. Wow. But anyways, I, I always I always kind of wondered if they were doing that to kind of mess with you and do almost what they did for Star Trek Eleven, which says, you know, we can change the future because of this futuristic involvement. Uh, they never actually did that, which I'm glad they didn't. But when it was when they were talking about doing this temporal cold war, that was what I was always worried they were going to do. You know, say you know, change the future so they could bring the Borg right. in earlier. Eh. No. I'm they didn't do it though, so it's all good. No, but they did have a Borg episode. Yeah, but it was explained. That was clever. The same way that they had a Romulan episode and a Ferengi episode. There you go. It was all very well written, I thought. There you go. So, um, second issue? Yeah, let's get into it. So, Assignment Earth, issue number two, entitled Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, uh, was released June of 2008, uh, written in art by John Byrne, colors by Tom Smith, letters by Chris Moiry, and edits by Chris Ryle. Ken didn't go into the cover of the first one, uh, but I'll just briefly say what it is because it's kind of cool it shows uh, Gary and Roberta coming out of a room on the Enterprise with several red shirted security men holding uh, phasers at them so it's actually a pretty cool um, cover so the scene opens up in 1969 with Seven dictating his report to the automatic typewriter Roberta complains about how this futuristic typewriter could put a girl like her out of a job uh, Gary tells her that he has, she has nothing to worry about and is starting to ask her out for dinner, which was kind of interesting, when Beta 5 beeps in an emergency alarm. So they go to the computer. Uh, the, the, the two of them go to, go to Beta 5, and the computer screen shows a picture of the Enterprise in very low orbit. They watch in horror as Captain Christopher's Air Force jet approaches closer to the Enterprise and is inadvertently destroyed by the Enterprise's tractor beams. Uh, all of this is what we saw at the beginning of the original series episode, Tomorrow is Yesterday. Gary's scans show that the Enterprise beamed the pilot out before he was killed, but Gary fears that the U.S. government will see the wreckage and the film and suspect an invasion. So Gary and Roberta teleport to the crash site in full military uniforms. They present themselves as Colonel Seven and Lieutenant Lincoln with Sector 9. Using falsified badges and a few well-placed sonic pin hypnotic attacks, Gary and Roberta get past the guards, uh, but they don't get to the wreckage in time before the military are able to recover the film and take it off to their lab. So they need to get to that film, obviously. Um, so they travel to the military base and start to sneak in. To distract the guard, Isis sneaks in and then reverts to her human form. The guard sees the scantily clad woman and leaves his post to follow her. When he turns the corner, he cannot find her. All he sees is a, is a black cat. Uh, his supervisor shows up and berates him for leaving his post to follow a vanishing woman. Uh, the cat then goes crazy when they try to pick him up and runs away. Using the distraction to their advantage, Seven and Roberta have successfully sneaked in. 
They are about to get to the film processing lab when Gary hears the telltale sound of a matter transporter beam. And they watch Captain Kirk and Sulu beam into the complex and enter the photo lab. They watch as the two Starfleet crewmen are discovered and arrested by a MP guard. Uh, before Gary can do anything to help Kirk, they again hear the teleportation sound, and the uh, policeman is beamed to the Enterprise. They continue to follow the two crewmen, uh, and then they end up stumbling across another group of MPs. Gary distracts them long enough so that Kirk and Sulu can uh, get to their next destination unaccosted. Uh, they eventually catch up with Kirk and Sulu just in time to see Kirk being captured and, taking, and taken to interrogation. They follow them, and they hear a little bit of the interrogation, with Kirk claiming to be a little green man from Alpha Centauri, and then saying that 200 years would be about right, the right length of time that he would need to be locked up. And as we said last week, uh, that should really be 300, but that's just being nitpicky. Uh, they watch as Spock, Christopher, and another crewman beam down and free Captain, or free the captain and return back to the ship. Gary is distressed that he, that he has to do something that will break every protocol he's ever been trained for. He has to go aboard the Enterprise and make sure that everything has been properly wrapped up. So we go aboard the Enterprise, and we see Gary and Roberta emerge from a turbo lift door in full... Uh, original series glory. So Gary is wearing a gold shirt and Roberta is wearing the tiny red miniskirt. Uh, Roberta talks about how these clothes, uh, she talks about how their clothes changed as Beta 5 teleported them. Uh, she makes a comment that uh, it's still kind of groovy that miniskirts are still fashionable this far in the future, which is a similar joke that Dax had in the DS9 episode Trials and Tribulations. And coincidentally, Roberta also makes the same joke in the novel that I mentioned earlier, Assignment Eternity. So it's just kind of funny they, that both this comic and that, that novel uh, made the same joke. So uh, they've arrived just as the Enterprise is attempting to do their slingshot move around the sun to return to its own timeline. So Gary is now rushed. He, as he's rushing to a computer to do his calculations or make sure that everything's uh, not going to affect the timeline, he sees Captain Christopher uh, rushing to a tel um, transporter room, and then he correctly supposes what Kirk's plan is about beaming the two humans to the exact spot in time uh, when they were originally taken from. But there is one calculation that he needs to make that Kirk had not factored in. So we now go back to Earth in the uh, office of Gary and Roberta. And we see Gary and Roberta and Isis in their normal street clothes enter the room of Beta 5 uh, this is during the emergency alarm that Beta 5 was doing earlier. Just then, another version of the trio appears out of the safe in the, uh, in the original series outfits that they were wearing uh, moments before. Uh, the original series dressed Gary uses his hypo pin on the, uh, the first three, who then fall asleep in some nearby chairs. Uh, the future Gary watches as the Air Force jet streaks to where the Enterprise should be, but does not see anything. So he's now convinced that the timeline has been returned to what 
what we had seen just at the end of the original series episode, Tomorrow is Yesterday. The sleeping Gary and Roberta wake up just as, their fu- just as the future Gary and Roberta fade away into the timeline. Dazed and with no recall of getting knocked out, Gary continues to ask Roberta out for dinner. And then we get a little blurb of what the next issue is, or actually we see the cover, and it is of Gary and Roberta with a wheelchaired man in the background and hundreds of soldiers with the exact same face and body. So this was basically just a tie-in to the original series episode, Tomorrow's Yesterday. Yeah, season one, episode 19. Which, I didn't mention it in the synopsis, but it's kind of cool how that that story takes place about a year, chronologically speaking, about a year after Assignment Earth. But as far as Captain Kirk's timeline, it happened about a year before. So it's crazy. Wacky. Cuckoo. So that's... that. They don't mention it here, but... That's why in this this other novel or other ebook that I read called "The Aliens Are Coming" by Dayton Ward, mm-hmm. and in that one, uh, Gary Seven and Roberta can't communicate at all with Kirk because this Kirk is a year younger than the Kirk they've met. Uh, which this book seems to go out of their way to make sure that they don't ever interact, but it's never actually mentioned that he's specifically trying to not not interact with them. Yeah. Which I thought was cool. So in that ebook though, it was it it takes place during these events and then like the next day or whatever, um uh, Captain Christopher is being interrogated by one of the military guys from the DS9 episode Little Green Men. Mm-hmm. And uh this interrogation uh triggers uh Christopher to completely remember everything that happened there on the Enterprise. Hmm. Uh, and then Roberta comes in, and it's like her first solo mission, and she uh, is able to use the sonic screwdriver-type pen and uh, erase both of their memories, and, and that's pretty much the whole story. Hmm. But it, again, it was it doesn't really contradict this, this story, which I liked, but uh, right. it was just kind of cool to read somebody else's take on what happened during these events as far as Gary Seven's perspective. Right. Yeah, I think the whole thing uh, was was pretty clever. And you've got even three (laughs) sets of things going on. I just really knew about the original uh, episode. So I thought it was kind of cool, you know, having Gary and Roberta interleaved in the different events that we remember well from that beloved episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Which was another one I, I, I liked quite a bit. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of clever. I liked that. Yeah, no, I liked it too. Yeah, I, I liked it and I didn't like it. Uh, the, the reason why I didn't like it is that most of this issue is Gary Seven and Roberta looking uh, around a corner in some hallway <laughs> or something, and we're seeing the backs of Kirk, Sulu, Spock, whatever it is. Right. And they're just giving us the same lines that we had already seen in the episode. So. Yep. It was almost like a voyeur take on on Star Trek, that Star Trek episode. Yeah. A little bit like that Trials and Tribulations episode of Deep Space Nine. Exactly. Yeah, in my notes I was saying I knew there was a Deep Space Nine episode that did this kind of thing, 
but I didn't remember the me not being a Deep Space Nine, Nine guy. I didn't remember the details. Trials yeah. and Tribulations. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it's a pretty good one. Yeah. But throughout that one, they're like always kind of behind the scenes watching the events that happened in uh, Trouble with Tribbles. Well, that's interesting. And of course, that episode happened before this thing was written. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. So this that could have been where uh, he got the idea for this. Yeah, maybe. Mm. That's okay. Still like it. Still thought it was clever. Yeah. Just might be a retreaded idea. Or a repurposed idea. Right. And, and it's nothing new. I mean, movies, comic books, television shows, they've, they've done this kind of stuff countless times. You know, you're always... They have. You, you hear one story, and then later on you'll hear another story from a different point of view where they're telling oh. you the same story but slightly yeah. different and the events that that person's doing while while the other one's going on. Yep. I mean, pretty much every murder mystery is like that, right? <laughs> you get one guy's story and then the next, uh, then Columbo or whoever goes and talks to somebody else and then they give you a story that it's the same story just from a different point of view. Um, could I ask you just one more thing? <laughs> just, just one more thing, Mister Sh- Mister Shatner. Remember that episode with uh, with Shatner in there? No way. There's As he a, was the rich guy. There's a Columbo huh? episode with Shatner. Oh yeah, he's yeah yeah. So he's the rich guy who ends up getting foiled um, because of oh that's right because he said he was on the cell phone but Columbo figures out that. You know his, his rich, big rich house is like up in the hills somewhere, and it's a dead spot for cell phone service. <laughs> but he or was using like a he was using something his like communicator, that. which <laughs> which should work. Right. You see what you don't realize, Mister Columbo is. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, hey, Shatner. Shatner did all kinds of guest starring stints. So obviously, this Back was a the more day. recent one. It was a more recent one. Or was it a car radio? It was something like that. It was something like that. Mm. Anyway, uh, I thought. Now you don't like this part, but uh, and I'm just commenting that they the they did have Isis more as a human mm-hmm. in here, and uh, she was looking pretty foxy. Yeah, she looked good. Uh, this one doesn't bother me as much because again, it yeah. was a very she quick, wasn't in very long. It was a very quick glance, kind of out of the corner of his eye. He right. thought he saw a girl. He runs over there and sees the cat. Which was kind of what happened with Roberta at the end of uh, right. uh, Assignment Earth. The next issue is the one where they really go off the deep end. They show her quite a bit in the next one. I mean, she's a full-fledged operative kind of thing. Right. Um, I thought the uh, Andorian, they had a pretty cool-looking Andorian uh, in this one on the Enterprise. Page 45 in the graphic novel. Not sure in the comic book what it was. Right. He kind of had a squinty face, I thought. A squinty face? I don't know. His face looked like feline almost. Hmm. Whatever. Kind of like, you know, like like the beast from uh, the uh, Ron Perlman Beauty and the Beast TV show. Hmm. I don't know. He didn't really look like an Andorian to me. But what do I know? Uh, but the yeah, Enterprise yeah. shots are awesome. Yep. The hallways, the kind of A-frame doorways, and yeah. And just the exteriors when you see the Enterprise. Yeah. 
just in space or there in the atmosphere. I thought they did a, thought he did a good job drawing it. Yeah, generally speaking. There's one angle towards the beginning where they're first looking at the Enterprise. I don't know. The pylons connecting the nacelles mm-hmm. just looked a little off to me, but yeah. Yeah, it's good. And the uh, the jet that Captain Christopher is in uh, is pretty well rendered, too. Yep. Now, we didn't really mention it, but, I mean, to me, Gary Seven looks like like the actor who plays him, but I don't think the girl looks like um, Terry Gar. Uh, right. Her nose is smaller. That's one difference, I think. Terry Gar is a bigger, bigger nose. Yeah, she just has a she just has cute little cute little features. <laughs> this this Roberta, yeah, uh, agreed, agreed. And who knows? Maybe it's because Terry Gar didn't give permission or something. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Now this is a nitpick on the episode itself, but they mention it here, so I got to bring it up. How the hell does this work? You can beam somebody into their previous body. And they won't remember anything. Is that what is that how they in the original series? That's how they got rid of his memory, right? So they they slingshot around the sun and, and right that, go back. They go back in time a little bit before they right. shoot forward, right? And they plan it so that they beam Captain Christopher right as as the Enterprise should not be there, uh, which doesn't make sense either. And then they beam that other uh, policeman into his body uh, shortly after that. And basically right. you you see the guy in the pilot seat and then suddenly the transporter effect takes takes over him and then he kind of looks around and it's not like he remembers anything. So what exactly did they really do? I don't I don't remember that. They didn't do but, that, but now that you mention it, I remember it, but I didn't remember that was how they wiped the memories. Huh. But it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you got two physical bodies. I mean, I mean, they've kind of gone through this. I, I think you have two physical bodies in that case, right? So wouldn't that be kind of really like messy, right? Two physical bodies occupying the same physical space. And what they, but but why do they even need the second body? Because the first body doesn't have any of the memories of what happened from the time he got beamed over to the Enterprise to the time they beamed him back. So it's right. like that few hours or a day or whatever it was doesn't really didn't really happen right so they really should have said when they jump back through time they somehow cloak the enterprise so exactly. that he never does see it and, and they kill the original they kill the original captain christopher yeah or give or him he, an all he, all expense paid trip to the future or he just vanishes like this gary seven did i mean the the end of this story they totally contradict what they did in the actual episode, and they have a future Gary and a past Gary actually in the same room together. And then when the timeline corrects itself, the future Gary disappears because he doesn't exist in that timeline. Right. You know, back to the future style. Yeah. Yep. So. Which, well, if you ever watch Stargate Universe, they have a different take on that. Um, where actually both sets of people actually continue to exist. I'm not going to go into details because this is a Star Trek podcast. Right, which they've done that in Star Trek before, and they've done, yeah. I mean, Star Trek 11. Oh, Star Trek just, 11. 
is a exactly. perfect example. Right. There's been Spock's episodes of Deep Space Nine and Enterprise where they've met up with future versions of themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, like some version of them got set in the past and they've had to stay on this planet for the last 30 years. And, right. You know, then, then the crew finds them and their young selves meet the old selves. So who knows how that really works, since you can't go back in time in the real world. But that's so boring. Yet. So, we will soon. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I, I do I, – I think I think that was pretty interesting and, ex- and unexpected in general where they went back in time a little bit and dealt with themselves. I thought that was un- – that was unexpected for me. The dealing with was... themselves was unexpected for me, yeah. but I knew that that's how – they did it in that episode. Right. Which doesn't make sense. I mean, you slingshot around the sun, <laughs> and you're going to go back in time Wait a, a couple of days. Wait, but, 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 you're not calling into question the slingshot maneuver, are you? No, the slingshot maneuver makes sense. You sling it around, and you go forward or backwards in time. You don't do both. <laughs> you don't take one step back and then one quantum leap forward. It's 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 one-way street, baby. You're either going forward in time or back in time. Agreed. <laughs> I guess. Whether you have a bunch of whales in your ship or not, same thing works. I'm sorry, but there's that whale corollary to the whole theory. And, uh, no. Okay. Moving along. Oh, another thing I thought was kind of odd is that amazing Beta 5. He just keeps on doing all these amazing things. And. And so he's got the ability, or it, I guess. There's, she. There's no... It has a female voice. Oh, does it? Yeah. Oh, from the original TV series. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Um, and that wasn't Major L. Barrett. It was not. I okay, don't good. think it was. I'd be confused if it was. Okay, so uh, the Beta 5 can generate a small warp bubble that's actually large enough to envelop the Enterprise. Uh, and with that, make it invisible or something? Now, that was interesting. Now, hold on. What? Towards the end of the story, Beta 5 generates a small warp bubble by Gary's command, large enough to envelop the Enterprise. Oh, is that what they're saying? And that's what made it so it couldn't be seen. You're right. So, I mean, I would think to project a warp bubble... Um... Around something else? I mean, they, they don't even do that in, in Star Trek. Well, in, in the normal uh, Kirk time. I mean, they generate a warp bubble, but that's generated from the engines around the engines, around the entire, entire ship. Well, you got to remember the... Uh, the Yeah, it's more advanced. The, the Aegis or, or whatever Aegis, their name yeah. is. I mean, Gary said they can cloak, you can cloak their whole planet. Yeah. So oh, Did he say that? Okay. Yeah. Because he said that it, their planet is completely rem- uh, or completely hidden even in Kirk's time. Right. Um, so, so, I don't know. I, I actually, you know what? I missed that part uh, when I read read through it the first time. Which, So that means that that's the only reason why um, the events don't just repeat themselves over and over and over again. Which isn't explained in the episode. Because in the episode... Like I said, Captain Christopher's beamed into his body, and then he looks right. up and he says, "Oh, the Enterprise! Or I don't see that ship anymore. It right. must have been a reflection on the light or something." And he goes back home. 
Right. So it never explained now, why the Enterprise disappeared when they slung shot around Didn't they? The okay. I thought they'd, like, use the ship's shields or something to cloak themselves. I mean, to, uh, but the shields aren't... No, they. I think they can use the shields to keep them cloaked from old radar, but they couldn't use it to, to make them invisible. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I forgot. I don't I'd, have to look, I'd have to look at the episode again. Yeah. But. I, I, I ended up watching it by accident... Uh, Maybe about three or four weeks ago. Yeah, and they never did, they never explained that. No, I just said they were going to slingshot around the sun, beam them back into their own bodies, and then the timeline would be set back to normal. And I'm like, <laughs> what happened to the Enterprise? Exactly. Why can't uh, Captain Christopher see it? Yeah, it just disappears because it's there one minute. He beams in, and he looks back up, and it's gone. And he's like, I can't see anything. Well, not even the little flash of them going to warp. In an atmosphere. It's a different enterprise. Well, because that's the okay. That's the enterprise from before they they started the whole fiasco. So it's not the enterprise he just got beamed off of. Well, I, okay, that's fine. So they're further in space, right. so they can't be seen. But what happened to the first enterprise? Then the original it's, enterprise. That's it. It's never explained. <laughs> well, they do it here. So here you go. Thank you, Gary Seven. Yeah. Here's the explanation. Right, which is fantastic. <laughs> it's coming in kind of late, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, good. So maybe that's uh, John Burns' way of saying I don't understand that ending. Here's how I think it should have ended. That's right. Here, let me fix it for you, Gene. Not there Gene. That was DC Fontania. Well, he's still the producer. Right. Anyways, and who knows, DC Fontania. Might have had some kind of explanation, but they just didn't have the time to film it. Who knows? Right. Who knows? I had an. Ex- I wrote an explanation in there, Gene. You cut it. <laughs> Sorry, had to fit forty. You know, forty-eight minutes. That's anyway. funny. Anything else on this one? Uh, no. Uh, I, I, I do have one thing, and it's not really about this issue, but it's about no. what happens right after they do this time warp thing. In the uh, DC Comics Volume 1, issue number 33, um, when they're doing the slingshot maneuver thing, they right. actually overshoot their own their own timeline and end up uh, showing up sometime after Star Trek 3, but before Star Trek 4. <laughs> and they meet up with Admiral Kirk, uh, who is in charge of the USS Excelsior. Mm-hmm. And they have a little the the two crews have to team up together to uh, to do some mission and try to get the original Enterprise back to its own timeline. So it, it was a pretty cool issue. It came out 1986 when they were celebrating the 20th anniversary. So they want that's why they wanted to do this old old and new mesh up oh. type thing. Cool. Um, I tried to look it up on Memory Beta and Memory Alpha, which is the two um, Star Trek sites I go to a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, they don't mention anything. They don't mention it being a link at all to the Yesterday is Today episode, hmm. which is unfortunate. It almost makes me want to sign on and, and become a contributor to that site. You should. You think so? Why not? And write all of our spiffy synopsized uh, episodes oh, in there. What? What do you? Huh? A lot of the issues are. There's a synopsis when you pull up the issue on the right. the website. It'll give you a synopsis, but right. It's probably only maybe forty percent 
So a lot of the issues that we're reading don't have synops synopsises. Oh wow! On wow. the website, and I thought, hey, I should just just copy and paste, baby. Sign in, put in our synopsises, but sure. uh, I've never bothered to do it, and it's been a year, year and a half now, so I kind of doubt I will. <laughs> oh. I don't know. I I think our synopsis is pure gold. What do you guys think out there in the viewing audience, listening audience? Anyway, all right. So shall we move along? Yes, let's. Excellent. Issue number three. Which is named, My Name is Legion. Published date, July 2008. Uh, I think we have all pretty much the same folks involved. Uh, John Byrne, uh, writer and artist. Tom Smith, colors. Letters, Robbie Robbins and Chris Maury. Uh, original edits, Chris Ryall. Collection edits, Justin Singer, And collection design is, again, Newell Neil uh, Yuyataki. So, the story opens on the bustling Illinois State University campus in the late 1960s. We see Gary Seven walking across the quad with a briefcase in one hand and a pipe in the other and the required professorial patches on his sport coat. But he is not the only one in disguise. Roberta is moving quickly towards him from behind in a mod love child outfit, complete with a fringed leather vest and calling, Dr. Seven, Dr. Seven. Roberta catches up and asks when they will return home. She thinks the past three weeks poking around this campus has turned up nothing and the whole thing's a big waste of time. Gary explains that the Beta 5's analysis says something is going on here, but comes around to agree finally with Roberta that nothing's going on. She heads off for a meeting with another student named Dexter, and Gary returns to New York and puts Beta 5 into a diagnostic mode that will take 68.4 hours to complete. Obviously, they're not running the latest Intel chips. Since nothing seems to be happening at the campus, Seven takes the risk that he will not be needing his right-hand computer for that period of time. Meanwhile, Roberta joins a meeting of progressive students led by a guy named Curtis. A new member of the group joins them, dressed in all black and named Tanya Neal. The group has diverse ideas on how to get people's attention drawn to their cause. By the time it closes, they are agreed upon holding a rally the next day that most of them intend will be peaceful. Most, but not all. Roberta, with, her st with stars in her eyes, asks Curtis to walk her home so she can ask him some questions. He agrees, and off they go. Later in a university building, Gary and Isis, in her human form, are walking and discussing the lack of progress on their investigation when Professor Eckhart emerges into the hall in his wheelchair. The grumpy old professor talks about the building being closed off to students past dark when he sees his Dr. Seven and a black cat. They speak briefly when a man in uniform named General Corey comes up to speak to Professor Eckhart. They head off together whispering suspiciously about Dr. Seven's surprise arrival so late in the semester. On the walk home, Curtis explains to Roberta why he is so against the damage to the soldiers involved in the Vietnam War. 
which is being inflicted upon them, and how too many folks back home are acting like it's the soldier's fault. They part company, but not before Roberta makes her move and gets a kiss from the surprised Curtis, while Isis observes events. The next day, the peace protest is in full swing, complete with posters and peace signs. An armed group of soldiers are there to keep the peace, rather than civilian police, which was a little odd, I thought. An angry, mustached man jumps up and throws a bottle in the face of one of the soldiers. The commander orders his soldiers to fire at will, when Curtis bravely jumps between the soldiers and the protesters and asks them, or talks them, into not shooting. They all settle down when a, lo- when a limousine occupied by General Corey, Professor Eckhart, and a blank-faced, beefy blonde soldier drives by the scene. The general states his disgust at the soldiers that calmed down and did not fire. No spines, he says. The paranoid professor states how the Soviets have poisoned our schools and children for decades. He promises that they will not poison what the general and he are doing here. Meanwhile, Seven is trying to go through Professor Eckhart's files to find out what he and the general are up to, but is not making much headway with the creative filing system in use. Suddenly, Eckhart's secretary enters the room. Seven zaps her with his wonder pen and gets her to to direct him to a special red ledger book. The book shows all kinds of money being spent on all sorts of supplies and materials, mostly outside of normal university channels. Gary gets what he needs and says, time to talk to the professor. Seven confronts Eckhart in a subtle way, asking him for advice how to squeeze funding out of the university, since he seems to be very good at it. Eckhart gets all riled up over Seven snooping and almost spills the beans about his Soviet paranoia when two identical-looking huge blonde men enter and take the doctor to a meeting. Gary attempts to scan the doctor and the two henchmen using the Beta 5's little green glowing square remote device unit, but it does not activate. Gary says B5, or Beta 5, must still be in diagnostic mode, so the investigation will need to proceed via more mundane methods. Back at Roberta's place, she is entertaining Curtis again, and jumps his bones before he can leave. The next morning, they awake in her bed to the ring of the front doorbell. Roberta goes to the door, just in time to be shoved to the ground roughly and knocked out by the twin blonde man-mountains. Curtis hits the closest one with no effect, then they beat him into unconsciousness. The general comes to the front door, telling the two brutes not to beat Curtis too badly, or he won't be able to tell them about the activity of his fellow travelers. They take him down to the car and leave Roberta. Seven and Isis break into Eckhart's office early in the morning. While searching for evidence of exactly what he is doing, they find a complete map of the human genome which will not exist on Earth for another three decades. Suddenly, Isis sounds the alarm that someone is approaching. They head into a closet and transport back to Seven's office, just in time to not be caught by Eckhart and his big blonde ape. 
Seven views their confusion from afar when Roberta transports into the office in her sleeping attire, groggy and heading uh, for a collapse. She explains that Curtis was taken. Isis explains who Curtis is, and Seven agrees they need to find him. They teleport into a very large complex, filled with advanced-looking equipment. They continue to search rooms for Curtis with no luck, and Seven chides himself for the imprecision of his manual scan that he had to do rather than use the much more precise scan Beta-5 could have uh, performed. They come upon a room filled with big blonde super soldiers suspended by harnesses from the ceiling. Seven identifies them as clones and notes they look just like the two guards that are almost always with Dr. Eckhart. The clones appear to be inactive, but turn out to be quite active when one of, one of them attacks Gary from behind and with a huge kick knocks him out. Roberta attempts to help Seven, then is grabbed from behind and knocked out too. The two come to and find Curtis with them in a room occupied by Dr. Eckhart, General Corey, and a bunch of blue-suited clones. Seven asks the General for an explanation what he and Eckhart's project is. The General obliges, but says he thinks it's rather obvious. The project is creating an inexhaustible supply of super-soldiers who have no fear, no moral reservations, and will not tire. They will sweep across Southeast Asia and drive the enemy into oblivion. Seven seeds doubt in the General's grandiose plans by asking what they will do when the super-soldiers turn on them. The professor objects to the notion, but Seven points out that eventually they will notice how perfect they are and how imperfect mankind is. When that happens, they will be through with taking orders from us and start the extermination. The general says that will not happen, but even if it does, he's okay with it. The general pulls out a gun and makes his intentions plain. Then, suddenly, the gun disappears. Seven states that Beta-5's diagnostic cycle must be complete and takes advantage of the momentary confusion to cold-cock the general. Curtis does his best Bruce Lee impression and kicks the closest clone in the face. The clones are the next to disappear. Seven turns his wonder pen on the general and Dr. Eckhart, apparently intending to wipe their memories. Later in Seven's Manhattan office, Curtis, Roberta, Seven, Isis, and Beta-5 are wrapping up the loose ends. Beta-5 explains he transported the clones to an Earth-like planet in the Vega system. Roberta observes that without any women, they will die out in a generation. Seven says there is no need to wipe Curtis's mind since he has proven himself more than worthy of their trust. Three months later, Curtis is in an army uniform and off to war. He has, he has been tra- drafted, but he is okay with it, since he believes the right man in the right place and the right time can make all the difference in the world. He leaves Roberta on a train bound for his destiny. Many years later, Roberta is walking her grandchild, Chloe, along the Vietnam War Memorial in D.C. Chloe asks if Grandma's friend is on the wall, and Roberta answers yes. He died on Christmas Day, 1970. 
Chloe runs along to meet up with her mother. A beautiful, a beautiful young woman, dressed in all black, walks up to Roberta. Roberta calls her Isis and says she was not sure if she'd make it this year. Curtis A. Wellborn is engraved on the ebony wall. Roberta asks if Isis can stay a little longer this time to meet her granddaughter. Isis said she'd be delighted to. The end of the story. Yeah, so this is the one that had Isis in speaking roles and doing some undercover work as a student and things like that, which I didn't really care for. Yeah. Well, it does take some of the mystery out of it. Right. Even though by this point you pretty much know she's a shapeshifter. Right. But still. But you don't know the extent of her shapeshifting. Right. I mean, you never saw her talking or anything in the original so- series. She right. just meowed and somehow... Seven knew what she, she says. Right. But, uh, I don't know. I, I think this is the one that kind of takes it out. Takes that, like you said, takes the mystery out of, out of the whole ISIS thing. Right. Which, you know, eventually it's going to probably happen. But, yeah. Sorry to see it go. Yeah, and then to have her just show up and interacting with people. And she doesn't even have the cat ears. So, you know, in, no. in, in the original series... <laughs> In the original series, you don't know if those are real cat ears or part of a, or costume. Part of a costume. You would assume that exactly. they're real cat ears since she's normally a cat. But here she doesn't have them, so she's obviously more human than she is feline. Right. Although I think it would be pretty cool if um, if she had the cat ears and they were real and she always had to do like a Spock thing, like <laughs> wear hats or something. You know, you'd always have to cover up the cat ears. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I can... And then, then at, like, at conventions, uh, you know, female fans would, like, dress up with the dark hair and with little little cat ears. Ooh, yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. Yeah. The, the, at the end, she has something over her head, but at, in the beginning, when she's at the, at the, right. at the school, she's... At the meeting. She's just there. Yeah. Makes a little bit more, makes her look a little more like a, uh, a student... Now, interesting that um, she doesn't. She doesn't at the end, which obviously is the end of the story, which is obviously far in the future. She doesn't look any older. No, uh, and Ru- she still and looks young makes and fetching. The exactly, she she does make the comment. So interesting and confusing about this whole thing: who ages, who doesn't, and of course, you'll notice that Gary's not there, which we mentioned a little while ago. So you know. Why isn't he there? They don't talk about him. And apparently, you know, ISIS comes back, like, at, almost every year anyway. Right. So it's like no mention of, well, Gary didn't come this year or whatever. So uh, it it's interesting. It, it insinuates things but doesn't actually come out and say anything concrete. Right. As far as where Seven is. Yeah. I, I did like this. I like seeing the granddaughter because they do mention her in uh what was it the um the crew number four yes they mentioned that uh our number ones read some some uh book that roberta's granddaughter wrote right so i just thought that was cool that you see the granddaughter as a little child here and, and you know that at some point in the future she's going to write the book about how her grandmother one day Walks off with a cat and never seen again. 
Exactly. Well, I wonder if that's the day. No, it's not the day. Yeah, I don't. Interesting. I don't think it's the day. No. I liked how I, I don't know why they picked Illinois uh, for the campus, uh, Illinois State University campus. But uh, being a Chicagoan originally, I kind of like that. You know. Now. You know, nine nine times out of ten, you know, they everything's in California or everything's in New York, and you know. The middle of the country doesn't exist, so kind of like that they had that there. Now, I thought they had that here because that's where they had that famous what Kent State. Is that where the grill puts the flour into the into the gun? I don't know, but I yeah, but definitely the uh, shooting took place at Kent State. The flour and the gun. I don't know. Maybe it was. Oh, that's a good point. Because uh, even though I didn't say in the synopsis when they do have the rally. And then there is some interaction between the soldiers and the uh, and the uh, the protesters. There is a scene where an attractive blonde woman, not Roberta, puts a flower in the barrel of a of a rifle. Yes, that was the University of Illinois. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, they kind of parody that. You know, I'm sure you've seen that picture. I've seen a picture a long time ago. Right, and they kind of parody it a little bit in The Watchmen during the montage about how things have changed or how, how the Watchmen world is different than our world. And they right. have that scene where she puts the flower in the gun and then the the military goes ahead and, and shoots the, the protesters, which right. is obviously different than what happened in, in our world. But uh, Well, at least at at uh, camp at the Illinois, Illinois uh, State University. Yeah, where that but picture not was... different from what happened in Kent State. Right. But I'm just saying where that picture was taken. Right. Yeah, something something and I mentioned I made a point of uh bringing this up underlining it as I was doing the synopsis. But what what the heck did General Corey mean uh when Curtis was knocked down in in Roberta's room uh her house about the traveler uh, about the travelers. Yeah, I didn't know that. He, I didn't understand that either. Um, it's like the only travelers I know of in the Star Trek universe uh, are aliens. You know, uh, the travelers that travel around that we've seen with Wesley Crusher and other places. So, I mean, that couldn't have been it because why would Corey wouldn't know anything about that? But in, in a normal 1960s reference, I mean, what what is that? What? Yeah, the only Travelers. the only thing I can think of is it's part of the ongoing mystery, and since I haven't read issue four and five, I'm wondering if it like the um, like the technology in, in issue number one is something that's going to be tied up later. Yeah, but I don't think this guy actually was a traveler, since um, I mean he goes off to war and dies, and and exactly doesn't do anything he, else, or at least appears to die. Hmm. Yeah, but he seems like a normal. He seems like a normal human, right? If maybe more conscientious than some. Still, right. Roberta sure was taken with him. I, I was surprised. Oh boy, on she's how, like. How fast <laughs> yeah. Gave it up. Yeah, Roberta's a uh, an emancipated woman. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> Wacky. <laughs> Especially uh, in see, in episode. Two, issue number two, they're kind of implying that Gary Seven's going to take her out on a date and whatever. Uh, and, and it's kind of implied that in issue number one, Gary Seven might have had romantic feelings to Diana. Um, so just found it weird that 
she's just shacking up with this guy. Yeah, but it's that could be. But I thought it was pretty plutonic, though. Although it was interesting, it was interesting in the original Star Trek episode when um, when Isis turned into the hot brunette. Uh, Roberta seemed almost jealous. Right. Which is kind of weird. So, obviously, I guess, it's like a lot of things. A little bit of sexual tension thrown in there, but, I mean, at least on the surface, it's pretty much boss, uh, secretary, or sidekick, or companion kind of a, a relationship. Right. Yeah. So... We talked about how Isis looked young enough to be a uh, a student. Right. I find it hard to believe Roberta could pass as a student. Well, the Roberta, <laughs> Terry Gar, I agree. But, I mean, look, I mean, they they draw her here pretty young. Right, but I mean... I mean, in all these comics, they draw her pretty young. Well, they draw everybody looking at their best. Well, yeah, but, I mean, she's really, well, I don't know. They have her drawn pretty, pretty, I mean. Yeah. There's I, like, I mean, at least, at least Gary is looking appropriate. I mean, he's in his 30s, late 30s probably or something like that. Uh, but she looks, I mean, there's like, like, I mean, creamy skin, you know, no wrinkles. I mean, she looks young in all of these issues. Hmm. But, yeah. But some, you know, sometimes you have older students too. I mean, I went to when I went to, uh, to to school. There were some older people that were going to school too. Right, but, right. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. Maybe, maybe I'm just being cynical. I mean, look at the the guy on the very first page is big long beard and a big long ponytail, and he doesn't oh, look right. like a student either. So, no. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm just being nitpicky then. Speaking of nitpicky, uh, did you catch the typo? I was going to ask you about that because a lot of times when IDW does the graphic novels, they right. fix their typos. I know that uh, in the original comic strip, uh, comic books of Countdown, uh, when they combined them into the graphic novel, they fixed quite a few typos there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a sh- 100% sure it is a typo, but... Okay, so the thing I found was when the... Um... When Professor Eckhart and General Corey were in the limousine, the professor says they've been poisoning out schools. Yep. Our children for decades. I I thought they should have said they've been poisoning our schools, our children for decades. Right. Nope, you're right. It says out. Right. And, I, you know, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe that could work in the sentence, but it's like, no, that should be our... Yeah, but nope, you're right. So that's the type of All right, so we haven't talked about the super dramatic ending yet. Super dramatic. Yeah. Yes. So, Let's talk about that, shall we? So I'm reading it, thinking, you know, I'm on already on page 16 before they even see the clones, and I'm thinking, okay, this is a two-parter because there's no way they're going to wrap this up in <laughs> two pages. Right. And but if you've got a Beta 5 computer around... Yeah, the computer just takes it upon itself to randomly beam all these well, maybe to another planet. Maybe not randomly, but it does seem like uh, it's taken an awful lot of initiative. <laughs> and, and picking the planet and everything, it's like, wow. 
I mean, it's supposed to be a really big, sophisticated computer that apparently has enough equipment it can do just about anything, making warp bubbles and everything. But it just just decides to whisk them away to the other side of the quadrant. Yeah. Right. And ha- then, if that's the case, then there is absolutely no trouble that Gary Seven's ever going to be able to get in that this computer won't just take the initiative and fix. I mean, if that nuclear bomb would have gone off in the original episode assignment Earth, would right? Would would the Beta Five just beam him away, but right before it happens, or does that make sense? Yeah, um, right. I mean, it, definitely in the Star Trek universe, um, at least with the Federation and everything, um, it's very clear that computers are servants to people. So in general, people have to give the orders. Um, and then the computers are kind of dumb servants. Uh, here, in this story, uh, <laughs> they're a full-fledged decision-making partner. It's like uh, it's like if this thing has the uh, authority to make those kind of decisions and uh, far-reaching um, and, and take those far-reaching actions without even talking to the humans, uh, I don't know. Who's in charge here? Yeah, it, or, or maybe it communicated with the Aegis. And got orders from them. Who knows? But you you don't hear that. It just and and Gary Seven seems completely okay with it. Just like oh yeah, yeah. Beta yeah. Five must have finished its uh its you know defragging. Yep, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> its hard drives are defragged. Right. And just so anticlimactic. I mean, you have all these clones. You're having this huge battle. Bloom. All gone. Yeah, and not only that. It knows enough that it's already made the decision that we're going to get rid of the clones, but the general and the professor need to stick around because, what, uh, their absence would cause too much of a ripple in the time stream? I don't know. but Yeah, and how much memory can that hypno thing erase? Because, I mean, they've been working on this clone thing for years. So is he yeah. going to revert them back to what they were several years you know, ago? I think you're thinking too much. Oh, oh, sorry. I I just think you're thinking too much. Sorry. You just gotta go with it. Okay, okay. And then I do find it funny that they're like, okay, so we're gonna let uh, Curtis have his memories because because he he's a stand up guy. He's a he's a nice guy. He's a stand up guy. Besides, he's gonna die soon anyway. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was odd. Yeah, there's no way he's ever going to get mad at Roberta and go get no. drunk at the bar and just spill all the beans about this future technology. <laughs> that would never exactly. happen. No, no, he's a good guy. <laughs> it's very odd. Maybe Gary knew that he was going to die in three months, so it didn't matter. Right. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, some bits of it just didn't didn't make that much sense. Did not make that much sense. <sighs> yeah. That was my last but, comment about the issue. What else you got? Okay. That's really all I've got, too. Mm. All right. If I, if I order them, I think I like the first one the best. The second one and maybe this one. Maybe maybe that's the batting order. Yeah. I, I'm, I, think I, I don't think I mentioned it since we've actually been recording, but I'm just not crazy about these this miniseries so far. Right. Uh, I'm digging it. It, it, I don't think it's perfect, but I I, I like it. I, I think these would have made some interesting episodes I, I th- if they ever would have produced uh, the TV series. Yeah, I think they would have, and I think they even could still. I mean, 
it's very quantum leapish type type thing which right you know which is is good where it has a sci-fi twist but for the most part is based in real real life or you know the real, real timeline world. or whatever but sure. i don't know maybe because assignment earth was never one of my favorite episodes and i, I don't know these stories don't seem to have a lot lot to them but i mean that's not you know john well. burns fault i think that's more comic book publishing in general now well, I think well, I think for your uh, average comic book, I think these guys, the, from a storytelling standpoint, I think they've got a lot in them. I, well, you think so? Compared to your average comic book, oh my god, I think the writing here is much better. Uh, I think these are some of the better stories, uh, writing-wise, uh, you know, that we've read. So you like Personally. these these better than the two we read last week? Actually, the the ones we read last week were really good too. Right. I, th- I think those were were good ones too. They had a lot of meat to them. Even though at the end of that uh, that one that was uh, that br- had bridged the, the the annual issue that had bridged the two. Well, yeah, the, the, right. the two issues that that were the crossover that was in next both next generation time frame and uh, original uh, series. Right. Um, I thought, except for the end, which was a little wacky, I thought that was very good uh, stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like said, well, wait, would you would you? <laughs> I, I hate to pull this nuclear weapon out, but I mean, how about this compared to your average gold key? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Okay, that's not fair. That's not fair. Let's see some other things to compare it to. Well, no. Well, I mean, uh, these are definitely better than gold key. These are well, definitely yeah. better than you know the original Marvel series. Um, I mean, they're definitely yeah, some of those are not good. These aren't but, written towards little kids or. Assuming exactly. that only little kids are going to be reading them, so I'll yeah. agree with you on that part. Yeah, but a lot of the early voyages uh, issues were really good. Love those. Yeah, and the, some of those I love. I like better than this. Yeah, those uh, those early voyages were like when Marvel uh, reacquired the uh, Star Trek license. So yeah. when I was saying the first Marvel run, I mean the oh yeah, I know issues meant. that were part of the. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, right. Yeah. And that's why I, when I said early voyages, I meant the series called early voyages, yeah. not not I, the early issues. I knew what you meant, but I was just trying to explain what I meant when right. I said the first first. Yeah. Okay. And I got that. Okay. Sorry. But maybe the audience didn't. Right. So no, I, I like these. I just maybe. I don't know. They I, disappointed you. I just wanted more sci-fi in it. I guess I don't know. Yeah. Well, hey, there's time travel, man. Okay. <laughs> of course, there was time traveling back to the future, but still. Hey, okay, time travel. The, the first one was good. Yeah, I wasn't too crazy about the other two. Nor I. So, just uh, coincidentally, or uh, one last thing before we talk about what we're going to do next week, okay. uh, I do find it funny that Roberta says that the clones are going to go crazy after a generation, or will go crazy and die out. out after a generation without. We'll go crazy. Or just die out because there's no women. I think she says go crazy. Oh, okay. Let me look real quick. And without any girls in the group, they'll have oh they'll all be gone in less than a generation. Right. Man, I swear it said crazy when I read it the first time. That's crazy, man. Well, because we we have read one story about what happens after those guys get uh, sent over to that planet, which was yes. in the crew number four, and they were a little crazy, but they were not. They had not died out. Right. But they were crazy. Oh, they were crazy. 
<laughs> they were crazy, man. So next week we're going to read Dr. McCoy number three, and it, it also ties into what happens to those clones after they ended up on that planet. Very cool. So next week we're going to do Star Trek, Zyma Earth number four and five, and then that Dr. McCoy number three. Excellent. You've mentioned that Dr. McCoy frontier doctor thing, so I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to reading one of those. Yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah. So just in closing, uh, real quick, the what else was going on May, June, and July of 2008? Uh, nothing much except for the comic books that IDW was putting out. Um, uh, actually, at the same time, uh, those manga issues were also coming out, so the the one that we've actually read off of, the Uchu uh, came out in July. Uh, But novel-wise, there was a three-part miniseries called Terok Noor, which is obviously a Deep Space Nine tie-in, and it was kind of like the lost era. So what what, what happened, or what was going on on Bajor and Cardassia and Terok Noor before the Federation got involved? So uh, book two and book three of that came out in May and June, and those were written by S.D. Perry and Britta Dimension. And then in July, there was a anthology, um, an anthology book called Myriad Universes, uh, Infinity's Prism, which is just a collection of short stories of uh, various alternate timelines from the various episodes of the Star Trek series. So basically any alternate universe that we ever saw in Star Trek was fair game there except for the Mirror Universe. Right. Because I guess because also in July there was a new Mirror Universe uh, book released entitled Deep Space Nine Fearful Symmetry by Olivia Woods. And this book is kind of cool because it's basically talking about Kira Norris in our timeline and Kira Norris in the alternate timeline and how mm-hmm. they're symmetrical. And what was cool about it is that you read the book, like if you hold the book up, it's uh, like the universe prime. And then you would actually flip it over so that, you know, if it was a normal book, you would reading it upside down. But when you flipped it over, it was the back was really the front of the other half of the book. So, huh? <laughs> so if you just looked at the cover and you flipped, yeah. you flipped it over normal wise, you would look like the the covers upside down. But it was upside oh, down okay. so that you could flip the whole book over and then you could okay. read the mirror universe uh, story and then flip it over and read the uh, the the prime universe prime story about Kira Nuri. So huh. I have it. I haven't read it yet, but. Uh, I just thought that was kind of cool how they how they released it like that. Well, that sounds interesting. Hmm. So, all right, well that wraps it up. Uh, so that that was issue number episode number forty six. So, yes. come back next week for episode forty seven as we continue the adventures of Gary Seven and Isis and Roberta and Roberta and Roberta and of course the Beta Five computer, which really is taking over the whole story now. Okay, thanks for coming, everybody. Thanks for listening. Later. Take care. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. 
All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.